they need to listen to. So that's chapters 1 through 4. He's gotten a letter from um, a lady named Chloe. She most likely had a house church that met in her home, and she sent a report to say, hey, things are, the wheels are coming off here. Here's some specific things that are going on, and we need you to address. Remember, we said before, there are no church buildings at this point. The church is meeting in homes, and the church with a capital C in Corinth would have been all of these homes collectively. So Paul writes a letter, and his assumption is it's going to go from house church to house church, and everybody's going to get on the same page. So she sent him a report. He's reestablished his authority, and he's um, planning on visiting. We closed with that last week. But before he visits, he's sending this letter to try to straighten everything out. So pick up chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. That's exactly what you think. Uh, a guy who's in the church has, that's a euphemism from an, for an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmom. We don't know what happened to his dad. Maybe he's dead. But it's him and his stepmom in an ongoing sexual relationship. That word sexual immorality is an umbrella term in the New Testament that means any sexual activity outside man and woman married. So outside of a male-female married together, everything else falls under that umbrella of sexual immorality. If you read through Paul, that's one of the sins that he constantly hits, not because he was a prude or it was, more, it was worse than any other sin, but because the culture that a lot of these guys, these converts were coming out of, not Jewish culture, but Gentile culture, the culture they were coming out of was very permissive in terms of their attitudes towards sexual activity. There weren't very many things that were outside the lines. And so people grew up not thinking anything was wrong with some of this behavior. And Paul's having to kind of say, listen, you can't, it doesn't work anymore. Here's, here's the box that you need to stand in when it comes to your sexual behavior. That's why you'll constantly see that in his letters. Verse 2, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? So rather than mourning this sin in their midst, they're proud of it. We said before that one of the issues in this church is that they're these spiritual snobs. They have all these wonderful worship services, lots of people speaking in tongues. They've got all this spiritual activity happening when they gather. And so they've decided, well, that means God's pleased with us. We're okay, so we can do whatever we want in terms of how we live. And Paul's trying to say, no, not the case at all. You're, you're not nearly as high up the ladder as you think. Again, they have this kind of elite mentality. He's trying to bring them back to earth, remind them of the truth that they believed in and how that should impact the way that they live. Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this. Paul had already heard about this. There's some indication he's probably tried to address it before. The guy had ignored him. And so he's saying, I've already decided this guy's fate. Again, he's doing this as the father. He's doing this as the master builder. Remember, we talked about that. We said whoever is the, uh, for, for us, it would be architect. You lay the foundation. You also have a say-so in what goes on top of the foundation. So that's what Paul is addressing here from that position of authority. I've passed a judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, so when y'all meet together in worship, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now, Paul's not saying kind of kick him out so he's going to be killed. That's not what's going on here. We're talking about his flesh being destroyed. This idea of handing him over to Satan, the picture is in the church, God kind of rules and reigns, and 
out there in the world, the enemy reigns. And so he's saying, remove him from your fellowship, from the protection of being in the body. Put him out there. We'll see what happens with him out there. Hopefully what goes on out there when he's cut off from his brothers and sisters in the Lord, he'll wake up, he'll realize this, that he's living in sin, and he'll make a decision to repent and come back. So he'll ultimately be saved. Just know the heart underneath this, we'll get into this a little more in a, in a minute, the heart underneath this is not punitive, it's not judgment, it's not we're better than you, it's not I told you so, it's redemptive. Paul's desire here is send him out so that he will be saved on the day of the Lord. Some of you maybe have experienced this in your own life. You may, whatever, I don't know all of your stories, for those of you who are Christians, in terms of coming to Jesus. And for some of you, you might feel like you hit rock bottom in some ways, where God allowed you to experience the consequences of sinful choices. And there are times when he does that, and that can call us back to him. It's almost like a, it's a taste of judgment in some ways that wakes us up to our situation. Again, not for the sake of punishing it out of us, but for the sake of redeeming us. Your boasting is not good. Again, you should be grieving what's going on in your midst. You should not be bragging about it. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? The answer is yes, of course it does. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. So the picture there is leaven. When um, Jewish women would bake bread, they would have this batch of dough. They'd pull out a little bit. They'd set it over here. It would ferment. And then the next week, when they, bake, when they had a new batch of dough, they would take this leavened bread, stick it in there, and they would start the process all over again. So they were constantly pulling out a, pinching off a piece of this batch they were making, setting it aside so it could ferment, and then using it the next week. Then once a year, there's this feast of unleavened bread where they had to get rid of all the leaven in their house. It had a hygienic purpose, some people say, in, in terms of getting rid of the old stuff, but for God, it was also a spiritual reality of, as well. It's this symbol of getting rid of this evil and this wickedness. And so what Paul is saying is, you're a new batch of dough, so act like it. As you read through Paul's letters, you'll notice the beginning of most of them, he's, it's, it's theological. He's saying, this is who you are in Christ. And then there's a point, usually about halfway through, where he changes and says, so act this way. Almost every one of his letters is set up the same way. This is who you are, so now act like it. First uh, Peter 2 says this. You're a chosen people. Listen to these identity statements that precede any behavioral statements. You're a chosen people royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. Do you see how... Peter, as well, he puts identity before behavior. It's one of the things that separates Christianity from every other major world religion. It's not behavior way into a right relationship with God. It's you're in a right relationship with God because he said so, by faith in Jesus and what he has done. So then live out of that right relationship. You're holy because he said you're holy. So now act holy. And that's what Paul is saying. Y'all, collectively, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that in chapter 3. The Holy Spirit dwells among you. 
you're a new batch of dough. There should not be, there's no evil among you. So live accordingly. Live as this batch of unleavened bread that you really are. It's always identity first, behavior coming out of that. Uh, it's, if you like it better, it's the indicative. It's who you are and then the imperative, what you should do. Again, that's a reverse from most major world religions that say, do your way into being. The New Testament says, be your way into doing. Completely different way of looking at things. For Christ, for Jesus, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He hasn't just, Jesus didn't just die to forgive us of our sins. He died to deliver us from sin with a capital S. Romans 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone has died has been freed from sin. So again, what Paul is saying is Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of cheating and lying and stealing. He died to deliver you from the impulse to be selfish, the impulse to do your own thing, the impulse to rebel against God, that sinful nature in us. You, you've been set free from that. You've died to that. He says that in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That picture, that's reality. And so that's what Paul is saying. You've been set free from sin with a capital S, so live like it. Don't live under bondage to this master who you've been set free from. Therefore, let us keep the festival, the Passover festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness. Those are kind of umbrella terms that cover every form of evil. But with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. That gets at this idea of living with integrity. Sincerity and truth are not opposites of malice and wickedness. Sincerity and truth really speak to our motivation. And that's the issue here. We've got a guy who's claiming to be a Christian who's living in a way that's just heinous. And so what Paul is saying is there doesn't need to be that level of hypocrisy among us. Let's get rid of that and let's be a group that makes decisions based on sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter, that's a previous letter that we do not have, not to associate, not to mingle with closely with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. That's the key idea. Don't associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, with anyone who says he's following Jesus, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer. That covers all forms of kind of bad language. A drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, don't even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? The implied answer is it's none of my business at all. Are you not to judge those inside? The implied answer is yes, I'm supposed to judge those inside. God will judge those outside, but for those who are inside, expel the wicked man from among you. So you see what's going on there. In this previous letter, he had already tried to address this situation, and apparently some of the guys were saying, well, Paul can't mean to kick this guy not to associate with sexually immoral people because that's in this, this culture that we live in, then we couldn't even go outside. And Paul said, God. You know that's not what I meant. That's not what I said. It's not what I meant. Within the church, there's a strict uh, code of discipline. You can't claim to follow Jesus and keep doing what this guy has done. So kick him out. Outside of the church, well, that's none of our business. We don't judge people who are on the outside. You can't, someone who's not, you can't uh, judge someone who's not following Jesus for acting like someone who's not following Jesus. That, what, that, no. 
the judgment comes within the church for people who are saying, I'm following him, and clearly not doing so. That's the line of demarcation, inside, outside. Not just people who are among us, but people who have said, I'm a brother, I'm in, I'm following. That's, that's the point at which you can begin to hold someone accountable for their behavior. Prior to that, well, no, you don't do that because there's no hypocrisy there. There's no hypocrisy for it, just blatant for a, a pagan to live like a pagan. If you want to use those words that starkly, that's what Paul is saying here. So for us, a few pullaways. One, this whole idea of sexual immorality, especially in this case, it's incest. I don't know if that's an issue where you've struggled. I do know there's a lot of shame around that. If that's something that you've struggled with, at, at some point, you've got to share. You don't have to share it with me, but at some point you have to. The Bible's very clear. We confess sins to God to be forgiven. We confess sins to one another to be healed. Even if you were a victim of something like that, the shame around that will hold you back at some point you've got to come to a point where you can share. It's never going to fit in a conversation. There's no segue into that. There's not. And so you're going to have to make a choice at some point to share that with somebody. It will be very difficult, but the healing that will come as a result of it, it'll be worth it. And just trust me on that. So broader picture, sexual immorality. I think we live in a society that says consenting adults, privacy of our own home, Nothing else matters. As long as we're consenting adults, however many of us there happen to be, whatever gender we ha there happen to be, what, it doesn't matter. We're consenting. There's no victims here. It's the privacy of our own home. Stay out of it. Biblically, that doesn't fly. It doesn't matter if you're consenting adults, and it doesn't matter if it's the privacy of your own home. Biblically, all sexual behavior falls in a very defined category, a man and a woman who are married to each other. And that's it. Everything else... Anything that you can think of, everything else, is outside of that box. It doesn't matter how much you love each other. It doesn't matter if it's legal. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is are man and woman married to one another, then check mark, sexual activity, okay. Those things are not being met. X mark, sexual activity, not okay. All sexual activity, not okay. You can't legislate morality, I get that, but you can absolutely regulate behavior. That's what all of our laws do, they regulate behavior. Matthew 5, Jesus says very clearly, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And it's so implied there is we'll be that way. And we each have to decide what does that look like for us. We live in this representative democracy where we have a say-so in the laws that govern us. And you can choose how active or inactive to be in that process. I don't think that there's a clear biblical command to say, you've got to fight this and petition this. And, but you can. It's completely up to you. That's between you and the Lord on how you want to engage and how you want to be salt and light. Being salt and light, that's not optional. That's who you are. How you choose to work that out in your life, again, that's between you and the Lord. And this whole idea of sexual morality or immorality that's, it's going to be on the forefront for us, um, I would say, at least for the next generation. It would not surprise me at all if our children are living in a world where polygamy is fine. Not at all. That that's, that's going to be stricken from the books as a no-no, not just in Utah, everywhere. Where it, it would not surprise me at all to see us moving in that direction. There are actually already some court cases where that's being 
argue. There's actually a case, uh, I'm trying to remember what court it's in front of, where a man, a brother and sister want to be married, and they're um, arguing that that should be okay as well because they're consenting adults and they something that they want to do. So not at, that's, that's for what it's worth. Each of you individually needs to figure out what does it look like to be salt and light around this issue where you're obviously, as a Christian, you're going to be swimming upstream in a lot of ways. That gets one verse in all of chapter 5. It was not Paul's primary concern, not our primary concern either. Another issue that comes out of this, dealing with sin in our midst. This is kind of a harsh this is the first time you've come, ever been in a church, and you hear us talking about kicking people out. You're probably trying to figure out how do I get out the back door fast. Not what's going on here. This is, there's multiple categories. I thought of five, four. There might be some other categories, but uh, four categories of people for how we deal with sin in our midst. The first is actually not an issue of sin, but it's just where we choose often as Christians to judge other Christians. Romans 14 talks about the weak and the strong and how the weak and the strong are supposed to uh, coexist. The, the context behind that, you had some Jewish Christians who were continuing to keep kosher and were following a, a ceremonial Jewish calendar, and some Gentile Christians who said, well, y'all don't have to do that. That's not what makes you acceptable to God, and there was a bit of clashing there. In Romans 14.3, Paul says this, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. So the guy who doesn't keep kosher, who doesn't follow Old Testament dietary laws, must not look down on the guy who does. And the man who does not eat everything, the guy who does follow Old Testament dietary laws, must not condemn the man who eats whatever he wants, for God has accepted him. The principle there is you, don't, you accept without judging in uh, disputable matters, is what Paul calls them in Romans 14.1. We would say it's a gray area. You know, Some people would say Christians should never have a drink of alcohol, and others would say, you can't have fajitas without a margarita. And so those things, you can disagree on that. We can talk about drunk is clear. No. Having a drink is not clear. It's gray. Two people who love the Lord, know the word, can disagree on that. Christians shouldn't gamble. It's okay when you go to, or shouldn't even go to Vegas. And you've got others who would say, it's fine. It's a form of entertainment, and here's my 50 bucks, and just like I'm Going to the movies, I'm just I'm putting it down and then I'm done. We can disagree on that. R-rated movies. Should Christians ever go to R-rated movies? No, because they're whatever. And other people can find redemptive value in some of them. All of those are gray areas where people who love Jesus, know the word, can disagree. In all of those gray areas, it's accept without judging. That's the rule. Unfortunately for us, often those are the things that we choose to crucify people over. We hang people over gray areas. There's over 26,000 denominations in the world. Many of them were started over gray areas, not matters of truth, matters of preference. And that's where a lot of us, we get sticky. And Paul clearly says, us being together is more important than either one of us getting our way. Read all of Romans 14 if you want to hear the rest of the, the commands there. But the overarching is, these are not issues of sin. This is personal preference. Two people who love the Lord, know the word, can disagree, accept without judging. Sin against you personally, that's another category. Jesus deals with it explicitly in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. It'll be up on the screen just walking through it. If, if, you know, if, if I sin against Scott 
he's supposed to come to me and say, you did this, and it, was, it hurt my feelings, or it, it wronged me in this way. And if I say, Scott, you're a sissy, get over it, what he's supposed to do is then he brings Brandon and Matt, and they come back and they act as witnesses to say he's not being a sissy, he's not supposed to get over it, you need to acknowledge that what you did to him was wrong. You wronged him in this way, you sinned against him in this way, and you need to acknowledge that before him, confess that. And I say, y'all are all wrong. I'm the pastor of this church, and I get to decide what to sin. So then what they do is they're supposed to bring me in front of the church. I would say in our world, that's a small group. That's not here on a Sunday morning. They're supposed to, in this small group setting, they all say, you're missing it big time. You sinned against him. He went to you. You ignored him. We went to you. You ignored us. So now we're bringing you in front of the group. And the group has said, you're wrong. That's a sin. You wronged him. Acknowledge it. And if I say no, then what they say to me is you're out. I've chosen to, broken, to break fellowship with them because I didn't acknowledge my sin against Scott. And all they're doing is saying, well, these are the consequences. If you're unwilling to reconcile with him, which starts with acknowledging your sin against him and confessing that, then we don't have anything else to do here. So you're, you're out until you repent. Directly on the heels of this passage is the parable of the unmerciful servant, which says, you forgive anyone who sins against you, period, dot, the end. So the implied thing is as soon as I say to Scott, I, I'm, I was wrong, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? His answer is yes, I will. And then we can begin the process of reconciliation. So personal sin, when someone sins against you, someone within the body sins against you, that's the way you handle it. And again, the point is not to see who we can kick out. That's the end result of saying you are unwilling to uh, mend this relationship. For whatever reason, you chose to not be reconciled to your brother. And so as a church or as a small group, we're standing on the side of the offended one, not the side of the offender, not the one who's unrepentant and won't acknowledge their sin. Now, again, as soon as you do that, then you're back in. All of these judgments that we're going to look at, the, the heart underneath or behind all of them is redemptive. It's come home. It's not see who we can kick out. Next, struggling with sin. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. That word is a surgical word, like setting a bone. Restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. So this idea to me of being caught in a sin, it's quicksand. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm in this mess, and I can't get out. I don't want to be in it, but I can't get out of it. I'm struggling with my sin. Now, it's not blaming circumstances. James clearly says the reason I sin is when my own evil desire gets stirred up. So it's not about blaming other people or circumstances for the problem or the sin that I'm in. But it's a recognition of I'm drowning. I'm sinking here, and I can't get out. I'm continuing to sin, but I don't want to. I'm struggling against it. I would say in four years here, every issue I've ever dealt with with anybody in terms of sin, I can maybe think of two instances that don't fall under this category. Everything else, it's this. This is the overwhelming majority of the instances you and I are going to encounter in the body of Christ. It's people who love the Lord who are stuck in quicksand. And often one of the issues is an unwillingness to say, I need help, I'm stuck in quicksand. 
Some of that is for fear that once they say, I need help, they're going to wind up on the back. They're going to wind up outside because we're going to kick them out. Not, the, not what's going on here. What does Paul say? Restore them gently. Get in the mud with them. Be careful so you're not tempted as well. Get in the mud with them. Help pull them out gently. That's our response, again, to the overwhelming majority of the instances where someone we know is in sin. That's what a little church word, in sin. They're struggling with that. They're wrestling with that. It's not something they're proud of. It's not something they're trying to justify or rationalize. They want out. They can't get out. Our responsibility, restore them gently. Very, very small minority. I can think of two, and that's it, actually, off the top of my head. People in four years of being here who I would say fall under this last category, which is just open rebellion. They say they're following Jesus, and they're basically shooting God a bird by their lifestyle. You've prayed, we've begged, we've encouraged, we've gone, we've said, please. And they say, I don't, I'm doing whatever I want. I'm going to continue to walk in this way, and I don't care what anybody says. And at that point, you have to say to them, then you, you, you can't be around here as long as you're going to continue to do that. Second Thessalonians 3 says this. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, that's in 2 Thessalonians, take special note of him. Don't associate with him. That's the same word. Don't mingle closely with this person. Why? In order that he may, in order that he may feel ashamed. You're trying to kind of cut this guy off. It's kind of a reverse peer pressure. Yet don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Again, you see the heart there. It's not judgment. It's not punitive. It's not we're better than you. It's maybe this will get you to open your eyes. At some point, we talked a few weeks ago, at some point, we have so turned our back on the Lord and run so far in the other direction, he gets to decide you're not on the team. Like at some point, you've crossed the line there. And this is a last-ditch effort to say, please, don't go there. Come back home. Recognize what's going on in your life. And that's what this cutting off is. Again, it's not to punish somebody. It's not taking out the trash. It's hopefully to wake them up. And the minute they repent, you, you begin to restore them gently. Once they repent, they move from that category of open rebellion to struggling with sin. And we restore those people gently. We don't kick them in the stomach. That's the difference there. It's, it's the attitude of the person committing the sin. Are they repentant or are they arrogant? Do they want out or are they flaunting like what this guy was in 1 Corinthians? He was openly flaunting. He was living with his stepmom in this sexual way. You can't have that and claim to be a Christian. The biggest issue, so you have the sexual immorality, which is minor to Paul, one verse. How do we treat sin? How do we deal with sin among us? He deals with that as well. The bigger issue for him is what's the response of the church? It's the nature of the church that's at stake. He's just said a couple of chapters before, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit collectively. He's about to say in chapter 6, individually, each of you is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is supposed to be dwelling among you. You're supposed to be this new batch of dough that doesn't have all this leaven in it. So how in the world can you think God, who is holy, is going to be pleased to dwell in your midst when you're allowing, you're celebrating, you're bragging about this guy who's in this relationship? They don't understand the nature of the church or the nature of God at that point. And Paul's trying to get them to see you can't have that among you if you're going to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. There's only, I thought of four places in the Bible, 
There might be others, but I thought of four places in the Bible where God deals directly with sin out of his justice. Often, overwhelming majority of the times when we see God dealing with sin, what we see is his mercy, which is him withholding what we deserve. It's delayed judgment at best, or at at worst, it's delayed judgment. Oftentimes, it's mercy. Four different times I thought of where God deals directly and immediately with sin. And when we read the passages, we think God looks really petty and really mean, but it's not. It's just. One is, we're not going to have time to go through all of them. You can write these down and read. Leviticus 10, there's two guys, Nadab and Abihu. They're brothers, they're priests. They bring what the writer Moses of Leviticus says is unauthorized fire. God was very specific. Here's how you conduct all of these sacrifices. They did it wrong. They brought something they weren't supposed to bring, and they he killed them. They, they died because of that. And we read that, and it's like it's an overreaction, and it's all of these things. God had been very specific. They treated him lightly, casually, even contemptuously, and they pay for it. Joshua 7, there's a guy named Achan. Josh, the Jericho has fallen, and God said, it's all mine. Everything in that city is mine. Achan decided everything but a few things were God's, and he took a few things and buried them in his tent. The next day, some guys go to fight another battle. 36 of them die because God's not pleased with them because Achan has stolen some things. And they do some casting of lots and figure out it's Achan, and they hold him out, and it's pretty gruesome to read it. The earth opens up, and the whole family gets swallowed up. Everything they've got. It's like an earthquake, and they're all down. And we, God, what is that? What kind of God is that? Again, that's just. He, it was very clear. Joshua said to everybody, it's all God's, nobody gets any of it. And he took some, and his taking some cost the lives of 36 other men. And he pays for that. Uh, Uzzah, this is a hard one for us, U-Z-Z-A-H, 2 Samuel 6, hold on, let me find it so you can write it down. 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 7. The ark is coming back, the ark of the covenant is coming back from the Philistine territories to Israel. It's on a cart. There's some cows pulling it on a cart. Gets a little shaky. Ark's about to fall off. Uzzah grabs it, steadies it, drops dead. He can't touch that thing. And he dies. And we go, God, he's trying to keep the ark from busting on the ground. No. This is how you're supposed to carry it. It's got these big rings on the side of it. And there's supposed to be these long poles that run through it. And only Levites get to carry it. And the poles are so long, so nobody touches the thing. It's not supposed to be on an ark, I mean on a cart with a bunch of cows pulling it. Again, that's dealing, there, there, there's no mercy there. That's justice. You sin and you pay. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, 1 through 11. It's not about money. It's about lying to the Holy Spirit. They sold some property. They said to Peter, we're giving you 100% of the proceeds. And he said, you're lying. And you're not just lying to me. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You kept some money back. So they both dropped dead. Again, the money was theirs. They could have done whatever they wanted with it. They could have kept all of it. They could have given them, they could have tithed on it and kept 90%. The issue was pretending to give 100% and keeping some back. And they dropped dead right in front of Peter. Again, that's the, this justice, this holiness of God in dealing with sin. Often, Every other time, I'm going to say that I can think of, God deals with sin in his mercy. He withholds the punishment that's due. He delays it. He pushes. Uh, The New Testament talks about the the kindness and the patience of God. 
And we see that almost every time. There are these few glimpses, and they're at significant points. We don't have time to go through and talk about why those instances are significant, but these significant points in history where God deals swiftly and justly, not angrily, not mean, not petty, but justly with sin. And what Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to see is, do you know who you're dealing with here? Do you recognize this holy God who dwells among you? Obviously, you don't, or you wouldn't let that guy sit on the front row. Not Bo. You wouldn't let that guy sit on the front row, who you know is living in this open, rebellion, heinous lifestyle. You wouldn't let him sit there. You wouldn't be proud of it. You would be grieving that you have a brother who's so deceived and is living such a wicked lifestyle and is unwilling to repent. That's what he's trying to get them to see. You guys, you've missed what we are collectively in Acts. There's 120 people in the church. That's what we start with. Jesus ascends to heaven. There's 120 people in this upper room. They're fully devoted to one another, and they're, they're fully devoted to the Lord. They're not sinless. That's never has been, never will be. That's not the goal, not sinless perfection. If that was the standard for coming in, then the room would be empty. All of us. None of us would be here, ever. That's not the thing. It's people who are committed to one another and committed to Jesus. You see the New Testament. It's, there's, it's frayed all around the edges. The, the churches are. So you have this 120 people within 35 years. There's about 40,000 of them. By, by 100 A.D., there's 100,000 of them. By 300 A.D., there's 6 million of them. About 10% of the population of the Roman Empire in 300 years under a hostile regime. Christianity goes from 120 to 6 million. That's explosive growth. Not because you had this group of sinless people. The people we're reading about are part of that 120 to 6 million. They were part of the expansion of the church. But they understood, they took seriously, Holy Spirit dwells among us, lives within us individually, dwells among us corporately. They had nothing external to prop them up. No, there was no Christian history there. There was no such thing as a Judeo-Christian worldview, none of that stuff. Again, there was a hostile regime most of the time actively trying to stamp out Christianity. What they had was an understanding of what it meant to be the people of God. And then they lived on that, and they acted on that. They didn't act, and that made them the people of God. They recognized, we're the people of God. We're a holy nation. We're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood, so let's act that way. The Bible says very clearly the Holy Spirit indwells us and indwells us corporately, so let's act accordingly. And they go from 120 to 6 million. We have more than 120 people in this room right now. And we're people just like they were people. And we have access to the same spirit that they had access to. And so I think a question for us, what would it look like if we took seriously the nature of the church? I don't mean the institution, us as the people of God. What if we took seriously that God wants to dwell among us by his Holy Spirit? doesn't mean we kick out all the sinners or else there's nobody here. It means it, when we're struggling with sin, we're willing to say, I'm struggling, please help. That needs to be happening in your small group. If it's not, 
Make it happen this week in your small group. Again, there's, there's never an easy segue to I'm addicted to internet pornography. That, that's not casual conversation. You've got to make a choice to say that. And when you do, healing will come. If we take that whole issue of what it means, again, to be the church seriously. So a couple of questions as we close. One, is there an area of your life where you take sin casually? We look at this instance in 1 Corinthians and think that would never happen here. We, that, no way. There's no way we would cross that line. It was socially, again, completely different context. It was socially acceptable sin. We have socially acceptable sins as well. Like Paul says, you don't let a drunkard. He put them in the same category as the guy committing incest. We have socially acceptable times. It's okay to get drunk when you're 21 and you're 30 and you're 40 and you're 50 if your team wins the national championship and on New Year's Eve. Those, we all know. It's okay on those days. Everybody gets a pass. Socially acceptable sin in that point. Doesn't mean you never have, you get it. For some of us, it's, it's, what we, it's uh, the way we talk to each other. There's some realms where it's socially acceptable to be cut others down or be sarcastic or whatever it is that we do or to be fake or any of that stuff. Most of us, it's sins, probably heart sins more than behavioral sins because we're all good Christians. And so it's, it's stuff that's in our heart that's socially acceptable in our culture that we don't recognize. We've said, hey, that's okay as well. Not a guilt trip, just a question. Are there places where you or I have allowed, we treat sin too casually, we don't recognize the whole, it's the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And he is holy. And we need to get rid of the leaven. And it's the Holy Spirit who dwells among us. And we want to make sure that we're welcoming him here by our conduct. Again, not sinless perfection, but not treating sin, not making peace with our sin either. Last week, I asked y'all to come up with three areas where you could say, imitate me. Paul says that, imitate me, because I'm following Jesus. We'll look at that when we get to chapter 11. I'm following Jesus, so if you follow me in these areas, then you're going to be following him. You're not actually following me. And I got some great emails this week. Parenting, marriage, tough first year marriage. Somebody said, I can help you. If you're having a rough first year, I'm your girl. Stewardship, getting out of debt, sexual purity, dealing with in-laws, homeschooling, dealing with being married to a spouse who travels all the time, learning how to read the Bible, being good at forgiving folks, being an encourager, all kinds of people said, here's some areas where God's been at work in my life, and I can say, follow me in this area. And I want all of you to know two or three. Not arrogant, it's just a recognition. God's at work in my life. And I could, I could say to somebody, follow me in this area, because I'm following him, and so you're going to be following him. By following me. Second step of that. It's not just knowing the areas where you, where you can say to somebody, imitate me. It's knowing who's going to imitate you. That's the salt-light piece. It's moving to a, a point of influencing others. It's not enough to say, hey, I've got all these goodies, but I'm not sharing with anybody. Whether because you're introverted or because you're busy or because you don't know anybody, none of that's acceptable. God's given us these things, these areas of our life where he's working, and it's not just for us. It's so we can pass that on to others. So we're going to close like this. You can close your eyes. A couple of different things that we want to pray. I want to hit this one first. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each man and woman in this room. Who is somebody? 
who you would say to them, you need to pull them in. It might be a son or a daughter. It might be a spouse. It might be a best friend, co-worker, maybe a casual acquaintance. I want you to get a name. I would steer same gender as well. And God, my prayers, whoever that name was that you brought to mind, that this week, every one of us would make a a conscious, intentional effort to connect, to pull them in. Not to say, hey, I got this mommy thing all figured out. And you're a mess, so why don't you come watch me for a while? Not at all. But to make an intentional connection with the idea that there might be something there. That we may be able to encourage somebody else with some things that you've done in our heart. God, if the 150 in this room, if we would all begin to say, take seriously, live out of the reality that your spirit lives within us. What does our city look like in a year and in five years and in ten years? What do our families families look like, our places of business, our schools? If we would all say, recognize, the Holy Spirit lives within me. I'm going to live like he does. I want to encourage y'all this week with no guilt the name that God brought to your mind. Send an email, make a phone call, have lunch, just to talk. No agenda, not trying to push yourself, just to connect. But do it with an open heart, a recognition that maybe there's something here. There's a reason that name came to your mind and not somebody else's. And if you're saying, dude, I don't have no, no names here, I got nothing. God, my prayer for those is that you would speak to them. God, you're at work in all of our hearts and your desire is for us to share what you've done. Say, freely we've received, so freely we need to give. So God, show us, who is it that we need to give to? I want to shift just a bit. If you're wrestling, and it's a hard thing maybe to admit, but if you're wrestling with an area of sinfulness in your life, I want to encourage you this morning, whatever it looks like, to ask for help. You may feel somewhat um, like you're on display if you come forward for prayer. We'll tell everybody it was for something else. They don't have to know what it was. But at some point, we have to desire healing more than we're worried about what other people might think. And so my encouragement to you this morning, if you're wrestling and you want some freedom, let us pray with you this morning. If you're not ready to make that step yet, my encouragement again is you're never going to be ready to make that step. It's a choice that you have to make. Again, no pressure. Just my experience is that's the reality. So God, for any here who are wrestling with an issue of sin, just a a habitual or a constant battle, my prayer is that they would find a measure of freedom this morning, not because there's anything magic about us or coming forward for ministry, but because you say confess your sins to one another so that you'll be healed 
And we want to be obedient to that. And God, my prayer for us as a body is that we would be a people among whom you feel welcomed, that you would feel pleased to dwell here among us, that we would not take anything casually that you take seriously. And God, my prayer is that would not be a heaviness at all. It would be, we would be a people of reverence and joy at all times. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand up. Bo's going to